This is episode 27 of The New Normal. We have a special guest, Miss Sheila Kalklicher. She is the Global Chief Digital Responsibility and Public Policy Officer at IPG Canesso. As a global leader in the digital responsibility space, she is focused on ethically driven, accountability-based data stewardship and ethical AI. She has a deep experience in privacy, data ethics, and operational data governance as strategic business issues and foundations of trustworthiness in the digital age. We hope you enjoy this episode of The New Normal. Welcome to The New Normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Each week, we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to the new normal. We are here with a special guest today. I want to welcome Miss Sheila Kalklicher. With me, as always, is my good friend, Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's up, guys? We are the new normal. I know that the schedule has been a little wonky. We just released an episode uh, this week. If you're listening to it, the week of the election, uh, this episode will be coming post-election as well. Uh, but we wanted to bring on a special guest uh, who reached out to us, Mashila, uh, just to give a quick background on that. Uh, we we do have a limited amount of time with. Uh, Ms. Sheila today, so I want to be respectful of her time. Um, but Ms. Sheila is recognized as a global thought leader on applied data ethics, accountable data governance, and human-centered digital responsibility. She is an on-demand global speaker, and she has been in uh, many, many platforms, such as the Attorney General Alliance, the U.S. S, excuse me, the USHH Data Palooza Dublin Tech Summit. And she also serves on the advisory board for the Information Accountability Foundation and is a corporate liaison to several industry standards setting groups. So I know today is going to be a fascinating conversation about data, the importance of privacy. And I think we'll, we'll touch very briefly, uh, if not. Um, you know, at least touch on some important bullet points regarding the election. So I want to welcome Sheila to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, very glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. No, we, it is our pleasure. Um, as we've talked in, in the past, uh, just before the show, the show is called The New Normal for a specific reason. And when we started this show, it was as a response to the negative application that the new normal was getting. Everyone towards the, the beginning of the pandemic was saying, we just have to get used to this. It's, this is the new normal. We have to just carry on. And it had a very negative connotation. So when Quentin and I started this show, we wanted it to come at uh, an angle that was more positive being if you if you start a new diet or if you start to work out and and you change your lifestyle habits those things become your new normal so we brought on a host of entrepreneurs thought leaders and individuals in government who were helping us steer our mental state our financial preparedness our physical and mental preparedness so that we were ready for a new normal in a positive uh, framework. And so I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show and, and talking about what the new normal is when it comes to data governance and privacy and global uh, policy as it comes to our lives on the digital spectrum. So if you wouldn't mind giving the audience just a little bit more background and where you're, you're coming from and, and your expertise and credentials that, that uh, help set the groundwork for our conversation. Thank you so much, Sal. I'm, I'm delighted to. And again, I, I applaud your mission. I think that looking for uh, lemonade and a glass half full is the right way to approach the changes that we are all experiencing collectively in the world. And I think it's, you know, if nothing else, understand the whole world is facing this together. So it's not just each one of us isolated at home, but it's all of us together. And, and it is a new normal. And um, the number one thing I think that has happened is we have done a pivot. We were already on a path to digital life, and we have done a rapid acceleration 
a pivot into digital first. And there are many examples of that, and I'll give two. One is in the health space. In the first two months of the COVID lockdown, we saw a 10x uptake of telehealth than we'd seen over the previous 10 years, even though there was some telehealth. We also saw to support that trend and that need, um, the regulatory authorities lessening or lightening the regulatory obligations and burden so that uh, people could telehealth and get the care they needed. Another great example of that is in uh, merchandising, advertising, marketing. We are not out strolling the malls in mass anymore. So companies that would like to connect to people to, to enable and promote their products, their services, to merchandise, to brand build. Um, They can't have a really good-looking display in a store window or beautiful packaging on a shelf. That all has to happen digitally now. Uh, And all of that, both the telehealth aspect and the marketing advertising aspect, is all driven with the data. And data is what I really would like to focus on today, the importance of data, the realities of data in a digital first world, and the importance of being ethical and accountable in your data use and your data governance. Definitely. Um, So just background, I'll give a little bit about me. I started my career in the U.S. Senate. Uh, then worked for a trade association in Washington, D.C., and then went to work for a data-intensive company where I was the uh, America's chief privacy officer and then the global chief privacy officer. And then I've come to my current company, and I'm standing up a global program called Digital Responsibility, meaning we are not just responsible, but also answerable for all the things that we do with data, how we collect it, how we steward it, how we activate it, how we share it so that it's always people-centered. We use data for the benefit of people. I like how you framed the fact that we were already on a path to a digital first, uh, and, and we were on the precipice, if you will, of a, of a digital frontier, and the, the shutdowns, the economic uh, turn really was a huge pivot point for so many businesses. When we first started the show, we had a couple of guests come on who were business leaders um, in Pennsylvania, in uh, Dallas area, uh, up in Chicago, um, in the Houston area, in the automotive space. And they were all saying the same thing with respect to pivoting the business and getting on uh, online, making sure that your business was ready for this digital um, shift that was going to have to happen. And if you weren't already at the time online, you were behind the curve and you needed to really step up your game. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, why, how did you see the data shift happening, the, the, the transference from a physical mom and pop to the digital space and, and how that's affecting entrepreneurs right now? And then how data and data security is playing into that as we move into now 2021, a year into the pandemic. Uh, I I think that is very smart observation uh, that it is not just about the big companies. It's also about the small companies. And if you weren't already online connected, um, then you're behind the times. I've even seen and you may have as well with my parents who are older and we're not connected, we're not online people, uh, have become connected. I've also seen in my work, um, the the companies large and small shift their dollars away from in-person brand building, brand making, connecting, merchandising to digital first. So, you know, the, the, the investment by these companies, large and small, Uh, The smaller ones, if they weren't online, they're accelerating into online or connected or digital. And and the large companies are moving their investment dollars into the online connected digital space. Uh, And we've seen that across the board. We've seen that in the array of services we provide because we provide a full array of of PR, creative, uh, syndication, activation, marketing, advertising capabilities. And we have seen across the board our clients move from large in-person events such as the Olympics or big, large music venues into digital 
Um, and it's not a one for one uh, replace. You, you know, we are all, I think part of that calculus is we're all very fatigued. Um, we're, we are, even though we, we spend a lot of time on screen, I think we're getting a little tired, a little soaked. So breaking through that noise, being relevant and meaningful and not fatiguing people is also a part of the change I see underway. And all of that, um, uh, understanding who to reach for, um, what your audience looks like, what of your products they might be interested in, when to offer it to them, what channel to offer, all of that is data-driven. So it, it, it has escalated dramatically the dependency, the need for data, for data use by companies, large and small, the ones that want to enter the marketplace with a great new idea, the marketplace is online now. So if they want to have an audience and they want to have a customer, they've got to figure that out. And again, that's all data. Um, you know, we've heard the term big data for many years, and it's really beyond big data. It's infinite data, connected digital life uh, across multiple different devices and channels, be it over-the-top television or your streaming services or your in-home agents like uh, an Alexa, et cetera, or your smart devices, your smart TV, your um, smartphone, your iPad, your laptop, um, a smart car, smart gate, a smart thermostat, all of those produce data constantly. So data has become infinite, a bit like air. It just diffuses. It's the way things work. The big question is, uh, yes, the data is created. And yes, there are systems that capture the data. But when the data is used, is it used in service to me? Or are you harming me or manipulating me? And that's where the big questions are. And and I think that's where a lot of people right now, especially the older generations, the 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 boomer generations, and and even the skeptics among my generation, who are seeing data being utilized in such a way, uh, and we can get into the election in, in further down in the conversation, but just looking at things like Twitter and Facebook and how they use the data, Google specifically, they use all of our data for us and you brought up that point are they using it to, to benefit us or or are they using it to censor us and, and keep us uh, away from the information that we desire and Quentin you've brought this up a couple of times in past shows when we talk about infinite data when we talk about this access to our our brains essentially in a digital format at what point do these companies large and or small become a utility whereby they are truly accountable and they can't shut us off. Is that, is that even a conversation piece that you want to get into? That is a very important conversation piece. Excellent. Um, yes, the, the, I am very concerned about manipulation versus fairness. And, and when it comes to big data and, and just our privacy as well, that's, that's been a question. Um, that has come up quite a few times when it comes to how information is being readily shared, how it's open to everybody. I mean, we've, we've essentially set up our own, our, our own privacy where we've given it away freely. But then at the same time, we say to the big tech companies, well, we don't want you to use our data this way. So, so coming back to that question of at what point do these big data companies, these big tech companies, answer to the people who are essentially their true product us we are their product and <laughs> and and when do they become a utility do they ever become a utility whereby they are accountable to that data that they have on us i i, I think those are the right questions and i and there is certainly an effort underway not just here in the united states but in other parts of the world uh, namely europe uh, and certainly with the Department of Justice here in the U.S., that they're kind of coming at those concerns and asking those questions in a world where just to participate, we all have to be connected. And what do we do every day? We get online, we use a certain search engine, and we search. And I can't remember if the statistic is 85% or 95%, but one search engine, without me naming names, has the the 
dramatic majority of the search market. Well, and one search engine has become the verb of what it means to search online. You well know, we said. don't we don't say Bing that, we don't say Yahoo that, and we certainly don't say go duck duck go that. <laughs> you know, we, we have a <laughs> verb for a specific search engine. So yeah, I mean, there, there's the argument there of of information monopoly as well. That's exactly right, and I and there is certainly both those questions: the monopoly, the antitrust. And there are cases underway that are challenging that. So at some point, it may be deemed a utility as uh, important to each of our lives, the access and the fairness, uh, like electricity or water. It, it may go that way. Um, but the other big important issue that this introduces is what did we say yes to? It's almost as if there's a forcing function. I want to be online and I want to find what I want or where I want to go. I want to search for knowledge. And the price of that is I have to say yes to whatever you want to do. That's called consent. And consent certainly has a place. But what I'll argue is people are busy. We're, you know, we're, we're husbands or wives or we're girlfriends or boyfriends. We've got parents. We've got children. We've got jobs. Uh, we've got health issues. We're busy. Um, we've got a lot to take care of. And I don't know that I have the personal capacity to sit in front of a NASA-like space station control panel and understand uh, with granular appreciation everything that will happen with my data to me. What I really want is I want to be able to trust the entities that collect data about me, that use data about me, that share data, uh, and the people that it is shared with, that that it will be used to my benefit. It's what I like to call the F word. I need to agree that that data collection and sharing and use is fair to me. And that gets me to the principle of uh, people-centered design. Uh, it also, coming back to the consent piece, consent um, has its place, but the other one is that there should be accountability. Uh, there should be rules about the collectors and users and sharers of data should be accountable for doing good things and not doing any harmful things and not manipulating me, but instead being fair to me. Now, we've got to figure out how to measure that. but And that's that's complex. It's challenging. And fairness is highly contextual. But it's part of our human value. It's it's human norm. Uh, in societies, it's the interstitial tissue of a community or a society that we live together in most, mostly in harmony because we understand the unspoken rules. There are certainly bright laws, but beyond the bright laws, which are the fundamentals, all this other stuff that enables us to exist or coexist and to be civil is the social norm. It's the fairness principle. It's I have an expectation, you have an expectation, and we just kind of agree this is the way that we will engage the society. So all that has to be transported into the connect, connected digital life and the big players that use data to create the connected digital life have to think about that accountability and fairness and not just transfer all the burden to a person uh, with the big, you said yes, therefore I can do what I want and I can do it fairly opaquely behind my big walls. I think we have to be very cautious about that and very concerned. I don't think we have it right yet. And, and when it comes to ethical artificial intelligence, AI, or, or even the, the algorithm as, as it's uh, kind of tossed around, at what point do, do the big tech companies or, or even a small company who is utilizing a, a form of algorithmic, algorithmic, I can't even say that now, using an algorithm to to figure out what I want to purchase, when I want to purchase. I mean, we see this in marketing with drip campaigns and nurturing, and that there's an element of manipulation in there, not to have a negative context behind it, but that's just what marketing is. You're manipulating people's senses so that they purchase or they they act upon something. At what point does this algorithm, this artificial intelligence, become beholden to the people who created it? Because, right, I mean, we can go terminators into the conversation or, or we can just say, you know what, it doesn't ever get that far because we put checks and balances. And what do those checks and balances look like in your perspective? 
we we do need those checks and balances. We need ethical AI because we are accelerating into a world which will be AI everything. That is the way digital life comes to its fruition. That's the way we will solve human disease state, balance resources, and be fair to people if we get it right. If we don't get it right, then we're going to have a dystopian outcome. Um, I, I do want to jump back and, and really talk about one thing, marketing being manipulation versus fair persuasion. Sure. Marketing, the, the promotion, hi, I've got a great product. It has all these features and benefits. Um, I think you might like it. Um, hi, you know, Mr. Consumer, you bought a new house. Uh, I have um, I have supplies and service and I can re-roof your roof. I, I, you know, the record says it's you know 30 years old. It's about time and I'll offer you a discount. So fair persuasion, like I've got a good product, trust me. And then there's balancing things. I don't know, like BBB. The Better Business Bureau that rates. There's certainly all kinds of rating engines where you can uh, get get sort of open source validation of the trustworthiness of a provider. So there's that. And marketing and promoting your goods and services is as old as time. Even in the political world, what do we do? We promote our ideas, right? That's political marketing. Um, the the harm happens when we do exactly what you said. We begin to manipulate people unfairly trick them, coerce them, um, and, and manipulate them. And that's unfair. I don't like it. You don't like it. I don't think it's fair to people. I don't think we should do that. So we have to, we have to agree that it starts with our intention to be fair. Yes. Persuade people. I've got a good product and I think you'll be interested in it. Um, versus tricking me and nudging me along a bypass so you can profit off of me when and, you know, I may or may not actually need that product. So we've got to decide from an intention standpoint that we believe in fairness, not manipulation. Then we have to devise a process uh, so that we can govern the use of data for fairness and to detect and prevent manipulation. So th those are the first two steps in avoiding uh, manipulation, yet using data robustly to serve people. And there's all kinds of examples. You know, I mentioned health a moment ago. When you have all of the world's data, and I think of data like bacteria, we didn't know it existed, the bacteria, until we built a microscope, and then there was a whole world there. Data has always been around, and historically, it was either in, in a health sense, it was in your doctor's uh, mind, who knew a lot about you, or in his chart that he kept on you. Uh, in the marketing sense, it was in the corner shopkeeper's mind or in the written paper that he kept on you to note what you ordered when you came in once a week to buy your goods and supplies. So data has always existed. The way we use it has become digital. And, and that means it, we're accelerating into AI, into advanced algorithms and accelerated computing. Um, but the the it, it's got to get back to how we use data what is the impact what is the consequence of the of the data use and as as users like me um am i a good steward do i keep it safe and secure and do i have a process to ensure fairness and avoid harms like manipulation bias discrimination so i have a question for you Michelle. um you know, as we move forward in the information age, we've we've gone from a controlled um, distribution or slow drip of information coming from you know our higher higher learning institutions, um, libraries, stuff like that, which it was always free and open to the public, but it, it was in a sense um, kind of just innately out of reach to certain peoples, especially peoples who were uh, illiterate. Um, and over time, information became more widely distributed. And, you know, you see that uh, with the development of mass media, um, people's access to information became easier. And then we get to the late 20th century and we have almost free and open information of all sorts. Um, it, it was truly was the information age and the golden age for, um, you know, the transfer of ideas and, and intellectual property. 
I, I am kind of concerned at the future whereby your access to the information is controlled. And I think we, we all see it by a couple of companies, right? Where you have to log on to the internet, you have a log on and you can be kicked off or you can be um, censored or um, shadow banned, if you want to call it, or suppressed to some degree on the internet while you're trying to access it. Or um, perhaps those institutions gathering large amounts of data using systems that the public have paid for. Also, if you're trying to access these you know, portals, essentially the infrastructure behind it was a public utility or for the public good. It all came out of the Department of Defense and the you know, DARPAnet, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So we're trying to, we're trying to ensure, in a sense, that information is accurate, correct, and that the people's use and intentions for your data is, um, you know, decent and there's nothing nefarious behind the scenes. But how, how do we do that? Who's watching the watchers? How do we not have an implicit bias created through programming um, to ensure that you are not getting very slanted information or cherry picked information? And how do we keep people uh, from losing their access to this information and, and access to um, commerce in the future without some sort of public control mechanism. You, you have just called out a bunch of uh, concerns, uh, things that that would be harmful to me. That none of that sounds fair. So we do need checks, balances, oversight. We need a federal law here in the United States that governs everyone. That's accountability based, uh, and that gra- grants broad rights to people. Uh, called data subject rights. Um, that's a, actually a European term. We do have in Europe, we have the pan-European uh, general data protection regulation, and then we have several more. China's just passed a new law. Uh, Singapore's amended theirs. Um, there are about of the 195 countries recognized by the UN in the world, 100 and 32 of those countries have comprehensive federal privacy legislation. The U.S. has sectoral legislation and I guess privacy and data protection, meaning data governance regulation. As an example, here in the United States, we have um, sectoral laws again, or laws that regulate specific industries and specific types of data and uses of data. A great example of that is the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FCRA, and it's a 40-something-year-old body of law that uh, created credit markets and meant that even commoners like me could get a credit card and could buy a house on credit, or for that matter, a washer and dryer if I needed to, or a car. Um, it, it was the, the greatest quality of life improvement event for regular people like me uh, that the world had ever seen, and it was the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It was the actual first data protection law on the books in the world. And it was I have, I'm so, sorry, I, I had a short question for you, but I, I want you to finish what you were saying. Well, no, I was just going to say, so we've come at it that way in the United States, but what we don't have is for non-regulated industries, and, and mostly that's, you know, all this technology space, um, do we have a comprehensive federal law? We don't, uh, and we need one. So I, I, have a, I have a theory, and this is a small question. Um, but it, but it is complicated. Um, so in, in the early, the first part of the 20th century, we had the various cartel laws for um, public utilities and you know cost plus per public service uh, corporations, and uh, included in those laws, um, which kind of formed the basis for the FCC, was you know the, the laws regarding phone lines. And one of my theories is that there is in no way possible that. Um, internet service providers or browsers or data collectors could in any way behave the way that they, they are today if we were still using dial-up because a whole new set of regulations would fall upon them in a way. Uh, and, and that's maybe one of the reasons we did not see um, these things come to light. And it's one of the reasons I think that uh, the Netscape lawsuits came about um, back in the 90s, though I can't really remember. I, it's been a while since I've done research on this. But it was it was the fact that they were basically using public utilities in an abusive way, and the 
internet service providers and all, all the um, subsidiary um, companies that fall under those uh, providing services, they've moved to different sectors of infrastructure to provide service, right? But in, in some way, because how they've opened themselves up with taxes and the tax code, they've turned themselves into public utilities. And my concern is basically that the laws may exist on the book or have the precedent for law might exist and have existed in the past, but it has basically just been ignored. Um, and it's been a while since you've seen the U.S. government engage in any form of trust bust. I mean, the last major one happened to have been uh, Microsoft's browser. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that was in large part due to the fact that phone lines were the way they were going about it then, though I could be wrong. What's your take on that? Uh, I think that, that our U.S. government has some catching up to do. Uh, I think that the way the market is operating right now, uh, I mean, there's, there was a lot packed into that question. And that's a very sophisticated question, very thoughtful, very deep. Um, but, but I'll say this, uh, we do need some leveling out, some balancing, uh, and it may be in the form of, of trust busting, uh, because again, as we said a little ago, Every new player, every innovator, every little small shop now, if they want to remain viable and alive, they've got to get online. Right? Exactly. Um, and, and my point being so, with all the questioning is that there's been at no time in, in modern history uh, or in the, the, the majority of the, the history for the phone lines where if you said something that was uh, not welcomed by those who were listening or scanning for it, you could have your phone line cut off. Um, there was strict laws in place to prevent that because we viewed it as destructive to freedom of information, communication, um, but being party lines, being a part of the public square then, and also commerce. Um, I, I can't help but think in some way these things apply here and that they're just not being looked at appropriately by legislators. Well, I, I think that you raise really sharp points. Uh, uh, and as life, to your point, uh, the, the public square, as life becomes all digital, where is our public square? Because this is an, this is an activation of our human values in a digital first way. So I think those are the right questions. Those are the right human questions and human concerns that absolutely need to be sorted out and addressed. And I don't think we're done yet. Uh, I don't think we've done as much, we meaning our U.S. government, or for that matter, other governments and other markets in the world have figured this all out yet. I think we've got some balancing uh, and some um, course correction to do. We've been going through a period of rapid innovation, what I've heard called the Wild West, for the last 15 years or so. And we are in the age of reckoning and we are moving into gated communities where everything is verifiable, accountable, trustworthy, and uh, it, all of the rights and the controls are, are uh, accounted for in those gated communities. That's so a I great response. Can... Oh, <laughs> thank you. The, the conversation revolves around a, a lot of the big tech, the big companies, the big Fortune 500s, you know, that's that seems to be where the water cooler talk revolves around. If we can back up and from your point of view, discuss how does the layman business owner who is struggling, especially right now, who's already financially capped and, and trying to figure out how to manage their day to day as it is right now with a brick and mortar, how are they going to compete when during the lockdowns? these large corporations, the, um, the Amazons of the world, the Walmart.coms who, who are shifting from retail brick and mortar to online, how are the small businesses going to compete in that same arena? Or, or does that open it up for them to be more competitive and more viable uh, on a national and global scale for these smaller businesses? What is your interpretation of that? Well, I, the, the, the mom and pops, or let's say the small tier, mid-tier that didn't have a robust digital first strategy need one. And then digital can be the great equalizer. If you have a product or service and you have an effective, at least advertising marketing strategy, and you have the ability to reach the people 
that are the most interested in your product or service array and you uh, can throw, you know, build yourself e-commerce capability, then you can get in front of those people. Uh, you can find the people that match your products and services and you can promote. So on the one hand, I think that market entrant, mom and pop, small tier, mid tier, they're late to the party, but that's the beauty of data and digital that they can compete. If, you know, if I've got the very best product X or, I don't know, let's pick one. Let's say I make the best butter cookies in the United States and um, I want to find everybody in the United States or at least uh, a million people who love butter cookies. Uh, and if, you know, where do you find those people? You find them on a publishing platform somewhere. Um, I would be one of those butter cookie lovers. So if they promoted their fabulous butter cookies to me, I'd probably buy them. And that is, if, if that was a little local butter cookie shop, that their merchandising would be in the phone book with, with signage out front, um, circular inserts in the paper, and all of a sudden, they have the ability to reach the world. So, Do you see it getting to a point where small businesses, and, and maybe this is a business strategy, but also at the same time, it, it raises the question of fairness, does does there come a point where the Amazons of the world just out buy everybody and they say, just use our platform to sell your product? But obviously, there's going to have to be some agreements and some terms and conditions. Who owns the product? Is it Amazon or is it mom and pop sugar cookie manufacturer? Like, where does where does that line get drawn? And, and are you seeing that conversation happening where a small mom and pop who doesn't have the capital to support a huge marketing campaign, a website, but come along with Amazon or some other uh, large tech company. And they say, I think even Facebook is starting to get into the web hosting game uh, where that you can actually build a website through Facebook. And at some point, they just own it all. They own the data. They own the, the information. Uh, as a day job, I'm, I'm a web designer and developer. And, and a lot of the conversations that I have with my clients is getting away from certain web building applications that essentially try to be the end-all be-all one-stop shop for setting up your website, your e-commerce, your marketing, your email. I mean, they, they package it all, but then it becomes a fight to get your data. And we're having that conversation about data. It becomes a fight of who owns that data. Now they own the domain. They own the, the e-commerce application that houses all of your products and, and information. And they give you some tools to export it, but they certainly don't make it easy for the layman business owner. I know that was a, a loaded question, but you know, just talking about small businesses being integrated into the large tech companies that essentially will be running the world. Yep, the competitive marketplaces are the healthiest marketplaces. They're also, in general, the fairest because uh, when people have options, they can choose the options that they like and trust, um, and they can avoid the ones that they don't like and trust. So I am absolutely for competition, and I think it's broadly recognized that it becomes very unhealthy and and leads to harm if you have one big giant player with no options for people. So I think we do see some options to the big uh, behemoths and things like Etsy comes to mind. Um, and I think there are others uh, that are that are emerging to answer that need of the smaller business person or the new market entrant. Um, this is another challenge in, a, in the digital first life where we are living. Uh, how do we get all the things that we treasure that mean a lot to happy, healthy, productive human life and human commerce? How do we get all those in place? Uh, because, again, we have some reckoning to do and we have some course correction. And you raise some very, very important points. I think it is going to be hard for the small business person who's never done this before to get it all figured out and to keep control of the data. I think of data two ways. There's all kinds of data, but the data that relates to people, that when you use it has an impact or consequence to people, 
uh, it's people. Data is the people. And, and I think it deserves all the dignity that we should be giving people. So I think you have to treat right. data with dignity. The second thing is data is like money. Now, this is how you drive your business. This is the, the intelligence that helps you figure out who to connect with. And when you connected with somebody, did they like the engagement or did they not like the engagement? Uh, so data is certainly who owns it in what context is there are, are, you know, are two entities, joint controllers. How do they protect the usability of the data? How do they keep data from being, you know, a, a small business? Or how do they keep their data from being stolen uh, and repurposed because they're using an e-com platform? So all of that, um, we've got to figure out, uh, some of it is already figured out. I'll give you a, an example. In the automotive world, the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, um, when somebody buys a vehicle, they believe they own that vehicle because that person bought a, a product that was manufactured by the OEM. However, the dealership that sold the vehicle to the person, they believe they own that customer record. So the question is, who owns it? Um, and that I've, I've watched through the years, just because I've been in the data space for you know 25 years, I've been a part of those conversations. And there's, a, there's an absolute recognition that data is as valuable as money. It's a corporate asset. It has to be protected. And then, of course, my platform is you have to use it ethically, responsibly, and answerably. Uh, you have to have accountability over all the ways the data is used. So, uh, I, I, you know, in the OEM example, uh, that was a that came off of a history where the OEMs had no visibility that the dealerships owned all the data, and that was hard fought. Uh, not perfected, but the OEMs uh, ended up, for the most part, being joint controllers, uh, and they prescribed the data rights that each entity had. Um, so I, I, I expect a lot of that. You know, we have more of those kinds of conversations uh, to have in the data space, in the digital space, as all the players figure out how to transact and participate. For sure. As we round out the this hour, I know we're we're limited on time with you. So I've got two final questions, Quentin, if you've got anything else. But if if you can summarize or if you could um, give the audience your perspective on where we find harmony between data security and trust, what does that look like for you in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Uh, I think it gets down to trust. Trust is the fundamental of all human relationships. It's the fundamental relationship between me and my children, you and your spouse, uh, me and my boss, uh, me and the brands I choose, trust. And, and people do business with people they like and trust. So it really gets back to trust. And what is trust? Trust is I believe you when you say something to me and I believe that you're going to act in a, in a way that's fair to me. Uh, and how do you translate all of that into a digital first world? Uh, I think we have to have the accountability construct to ring that bell again. And that's a coming together of security and data use. So security is the idea that data is absolutely protected from any and all unauthorized access. And, and it's a, it's a arms race. The bad actors, you know, you have, Kitty scripters that kind of do it for fun. And you have hacktivists, uh, you have paid for hackers, and then you have government actors that are all trying to hack in and steal the data. So security, security, security table stakes. It's a, an ongoing challenge to stay ahead of the bad actors. What is your opinion right now as we've just entered into the third full day of the post-election issues that we're having here in the States when it comes to security, when it comes to what uh, one of our previous guests, Hans Johnson, he's, he's essentially coined this term of we have seen since the start of this year and, and far, far beyond the, just the start of this year, but really seeing it come to a head is this death of trust. So we're talking a lot about trust and security and, and the security of that data but are we seeing a death of trust? Is that being eroded? And how is the election that's unfolding before us uh, 
kind of at the forefront of that conversation of this this distrust now, not only in the media, but of the, the data that we have provided to our, our elected officials, to our, our pollsters, to the individuals who are counting the ballots. Where is data and security when it comes to this thought that death, or excuse me, that trust is slowly being eroded away? I, I agree with you. Trust is dramatically eroded away. It's one of the, the statistics I track. There's a lot of research on it. You can go look at the Edelman Trust Barometer. shows a dramatic fall-off. So yes, and it's because um, we've had a bunch of, I think there's been a trajectory. There's been a bunch of business failings and business predation on people and business manipulation of people and manipulation of elections. And then Cambridge Analytica sort of blew the doors wide open. Uh-huh. You really are doing bad things with people's data. You are manipulating them. Not everybody was, but they certainly were. And, and it's just, you know, for about the past 10 years, there's lots and lots of failures and harms and data misuse. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to manipulate you for my gain and you know, all kinds of stuff. So, yes, there's been a, an erosion. Um, and I think it, we need a correction. It's, you know, what I, again, I'll call it the age of reckoning. I mean, we're just humans on this planet and we all need to treat each other with dignity and civility. And all the things that allow us to exist in harmony and live in relationship with respect and dignity, we need to map that into the digital world and the language of digital as data. Um, the answer to a lot of that, because I'd like everybody to be a good actor, but of course they aren't. Uh, the answer to that, a lot of this is trust proxies uh, in the health and medical space. You have uh, medical review boards that review um, you know, clinical trials or medical uses of data. And these are experts that judge the data and, and the presenters present, we're going to do this and here are the controls and here's the projected outcome and here we're going to, here's our security. And then you have experts that judge it. That's an example of a trust proxy. Another example is the medical oath or, um, you know, as an attorney, you, you sign, you know, your attorney credential. There's lots of trust proxies and this is a prescription of what you promise to do and therefore you agree you will be held accountable to and then you have enforcement agents and that's really what our laws are supposed to be our industry codes of conduct are supposed to be and our regulatory authorities regulating and enforcing are supposed to be uh, i think we've got catch up to do i don't i don't think we're doing as good of a job as we need to again i think we've gone through a period of rapid innovation and things have kind of gotten away from us uh, I think you're going to see a lot play out over the next 24 months, a lot of course correction. Uh, when it comes to data in the United States, we've got pressure from all over the rest of the world to do something, to do something more, to do something comprehensive that gives the rest of the world some trust that the United States is acting responsibly. And when I say the U.S., I do mean not just our government, but also us commercial. Uh, collectors and users of data that we are responsible with with data. So we have pressure from all over the world. Um, I really think it's important for us to get a federal law uh, that levels the playing field for all commercial entrants, protects the competitive marketplace, and again functions as the trust proxy. So we are all accountable to the same standard, uh, and the regulators can effectively enforce it. I, I agree with what you just said about the federal law. Well, I, I agree with almost everything you've said so far, I, I, I believe. Um, but, you know, one of the things I tell people all the time uh, um, is the, the private business can't actually violate your civil rights. And, and you can see that with um, protected classes in the workplace and, um, you know, uh, the inability for private business to refuse service to uh, protected classes, right? So that means that private business does actually have to respect um, your rights. And if the government could just outsource tyranny or um, you know, a, a, an abuse of your rights to private corporations, I think that more nefarious actors within governments would do that often, but, but they're actually prevented from doing that. And for whatever reason, um, they've chosen over the last 20 years to um, not put the proper restrictions on this sector of industry within the country. And uh, it's been, it's been 
you know, it's always great to operate in an unregulated market, right? There's a lot of growth potential, but in, in the future, we could see a great deal of tyranny come from this sector, if not properly restricted. And the government, like I said, they just cannot outsource tyranny. It's, it's unconstitutional. Um, you're right about that. And I think that is a very smart observation that unregulated markets innovate fast and, and it's exciting. And I and I in this country, we made a, a choice to let the Internet develop in a mostly unregulated way. That was a conscious decision by the then administration of the United States. It was asked, it was answered, and it was largely, let's see where this thing takes us, let the innovation flourish. And it did. And I, you know, I like you guys, I know I love my connected experience, uh, maybe a little too much. I love my streaming and I love my smart device. And I, I love, you know, I, I, I take full advantage of being connected. And I'm really thankful uh, that some of these big tech innovators have brought me such amazing um, capability that I can stay connected, find friends and stay connected with friends from all over the world that I otherwise wouldn't really have been able to do in the same way. Uh, so all that's fabulous. But your point, Yes, it's developed in largely as an unregulated thing, and now uh, it's time to kind of get get all the cleanup done, the reckoning, if you will. Yeah, we let the genie out of the bottle. <laughs> well said. Sheila Cocklicher has been our guest today. I want to thank you so much. I want to acknowledge you for your expertise, for your commitment to bringing the conversation to the forefront when it comes to data and security and people's privacy as we shift into this digital space where we are taking our lives from a physical domain into this digital unknown, this wild west, as you said earlier. It's easy to see why you were in 2017 one of the 12 amazing women in security. So I would definitely uh, give you high praise on, on that side. So Sheila, thank you so much for being our guest. Again, I know that you are hard pressed for time and we want to thank you for the time that you have spent with us. Do you have any closing thoughts or remarks that you'd like to leave our audience with? Any uh, Anywhere that they can follow you, support you, if you've got anything that you'd like them to uh, to be aware of? Come connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, it's, it's a global community, so let's connect and, and be together. Uh, and I just want to thank you both. Uh, the new normal uh, from a positive perspective, helping us all think through what that looks like is really important. And I applaud your work. And I really thank you for having me on today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Guys, if you are interested in finding out more about Ms. Sheila, you can find her on LinkedIn. We will leave her LinkedIn uh, profile in the show notes and anywhere else that you may be able to find her. We look forward to future conversations with Sheila um, as we start to dive further into this digital space, into this future world that uh, we will be leaving in. As always, if you can find us on iTunes and Spotify, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe. We'd love to get your feedback, and you can always find us at newnormalpod.com. As always, stay safe, and welcome to the new normal. <laughs>